0: If that is what Crete really looks like, I want to go now. And I certainly don't want to go to Traverse City in the next week. Yeah, no offense to Traverse City. Those of you that live there, I'll pray for you more. Welcome to the Tabernacle here in Buckley and in uh, Manistee and soon in Cadillac. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad that you're here. And we're in uh, our series, our second week of Titus. So if you have a Bible or a flat screen, I encourage you... Uh, to turn there. It's where we'll be in our study, and we're trying to encourage all of us more and more to follow along. I know some of you are more, you, you've said, Listen, John, I'd bring a Bible, except I'm more auditory or whatever, and if that's your excuse, whatevs. But um, that's fine. Uh, we're certainly not going to. Uh, be militant about it, but at least knowing what the Bible says, I think, is important for us, and knowing our way around it is going to become increasingly important for us. So, in our study, um, just as a reminder, the reason we've got the, you know, kind of the lyric, it's not just because, or the, sorry, the graphic, it's not just because it's um, summertime, it's Titus was written to a young pastor who was assigned uh, to Crete, which is a Mediterranean island. At the time, it was the most populous of all the Mediterranean islands. And, uh, and all those pictures come from there. Paul had planted the church there, and now the church was growing in all the various towns and villages. And Titus was over all of them. And if you will, and I don't think I'm bending scripture, it was actually a multi-site church. Uh, he starts by, uh, in, in fact, even in our text, by saying to appoint elders in every town. But the theme uh, for the day and in the, in the title of this message is he was encouraging all of us to live a life that's above reproach, above reproach. And so we'll dive right into that. Just a reminder, Titus was written in about 60 AD. And uh, and again, the author was Paul. Titus is the pastor, but it's preserved by God's spirit and it's written also to us. So if you'll follow with me, we're in Titus chapter one and we'll start in verse five. And today we'll just be looking at um, about four verses. So He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, in our study, uh, what, what I wouldn't want you to do as we look at God's word is to think, well, this has to do with pastors and elders. And we can have, you know, kind of weird uh, responses to that. For some of you have been reading ahead and you're like, well, this is all about pastors and that's good. This is what they should be. So finally, it's a time where John can get his, <laughs> right? This is a message uh, just at him. But God's word is for all of us. so It's not just for me, but he, he, he does say the occasion for the letter is that he wants Titus to to appoint elders or leaders in all the towns. And so this isn't just about church leaders, it could be any leaders. But these leaders specifically are for the church. And so we need to break that word down. Forever churches get in arguments about what we should call uh, her staff members, right? Are they pastors? Are they elders? Some churches insist upon using uh, these, this first century language where you have elders and deacons, and they even come in here and goes, where? where are your deacons and your deaconesses? And, you know, we have a church ministry staff, but it's really the same thing. The Bible does not give us the exact template for the way a church structure is supposed to look. It gives us principles we get principles for what the leadership structure should look like, but it's not an exact template. And if you're one of those people that love to fight about those things, this is not the church for you, okay? So when it says an elder, it's, it's referring to someone that's been in the faith for a while that is a leader. So does it include pastor? Yes, yes, yes. We know from Titus, and we also know from 1 Timothy, where it's a very similar letter, where Paul gives instructions uh, to a younger pastor, uh, that an elder is someone who is able to teach. Well, at our church, we have uh, a bunch of elders. We have a lot of pastors, and they're all able to teach in some capacity. Some on a weekend, some with students, and in various capacities. But then we also have a board and and people get upset sometimes because they're like, well, is this a board of elders? There's men and women on it. And I don't think an elder should be a woman because we don't see that in scripture. Well, we retort with, well, it's a board of directors. Slight difference. Are you with me? It's a board made of both elders and deacons. Whenever we talk about men and women, don't get quiet on me. (laughs) This is the tabernacle. We don't shush things under the rug. We put them right out there in the open. And so at our church, it's a board of directors. So when Paul is speaking to Titus about leaders, does it include pastors? Yes. Does it include our board of directors made up of both elders and deacons? Yes. And I don't want to make this about elders and deacons and that sort of thing. Does it include ministry staff? Yes. So anyone who's kind of in any sort of church leadership role, I would say it even applies to those that are volunteer ministry leaders people that help run retreats, people who are small group leaders, either at a fight club or a women's Bible study. In any capacity, Paul is talking about some criteria or some characteristics of leadership within the church. you with me so far? Do I bore you to death already? I'm going to need your help, okay? I'm about to go on vacation. This could get a little sporty, Okay. And what he says, and he mentions it twice, whenever you're studying God's word in a passage and you see something repeated, take note. Twice he says that they should be above reproach. Above reproach. That's the leadership we're looking for. Leadership that is above reproach. And if I'm honest, because a lot of this does have to do with my job, I'm sitting here going, above reproach. Can I look in the mirror and honestly say that? Well, at first glance, you might think that above reproach means perfect or that it means flawless. And that's where I got a little uncomfortable. So I had to dig a little bit deeper. And thank God that's not what above reproach means. (laughs) Because there's only been one perfect man who's ever walked the face of the earth, and his name is Jesus. There's only been one flawless person who's ever walked the face of the earth, and his name is Jesus. So we have to dig deeper into what does it mean by above reproach. And the best that I could tell is someone who lives, man or woman, an above reproach life is a life that's free from a charge of improper conduct, or any such charge would be easily dismissed because above reproach means a consistent trajectory or a consistent example in their life, that what they're pursuing in private is also what they're pursuing in public. What you see is what you get, and it may not be perfect, but... It's a consistent example of someone who's trying to apply God's truth to their life. That's above reproach. And twice he says to Titus, I would like you to appoint, I recommend that you appoint elders in all the towns that are, abro- that are above reproach. This is what we want for our leaders. And this is important uh, because a church cannot go beyond the level of its leadership. A church cannot go beyond the level of its leadership. So, we have about uh, 18, 19, uh, maybe 20 now, because it's always changing, I should know, of uh, full time and part time staff members at our church. And so, when we get together every month at a paid staff meeting, one of the things that we've been making an emphasis is to go deeper in our relationship with God, to go deeper in the spiritual sense, right? And it's funny, because even with our paid staff, and I'm going to call them out right now, that there's several that are like, I don't think we ought to be doing this. We ought to be talking about budgets and organizations, and we shouldn't go deep personally, and we shouldn't be focused on these things. Well, that's why they're not in charge, because a church can't go beyond the level of its leadership, and so we need to go deep spiritually in order to lead anyone there, students, children, adults, or otherwise. Does that make sense to you? It's just a matter of fact that a church cannot go beyond the level of its leaders. And that's why Paul says there's certain characteristics I'm looking for in leaders. And by the way, before I bore you to death, this applies to any organization. A business can't go beyond the level of its leadership. A team cannot go beyond the level of its leadership. You know, I spent a lot of time with high school sports. When you see a team that is poorly behaved, that's a bad reflection on its coach, period. And the coach that's like, well, you know, kids these days, I'm like, well, you should be fired. Your kids are acting like a bunch of debauched animals, right? Because a team can't go beyond its level of leadership. Now watch this. A family cannot go beyond the level of its leadership. You listening, Dads. You listening, moms, a marriage can't go beyond the level of its leadership. It's been said before by better men than me. Everything rises and falls with leadership, not because leaders are the most important, but because of this truth. Now, a couple things that I, that we have to say before we get down to the brass tacks of how it applies to all of us. I think it's important, and you've heard me forever saying that there's no wasted words in Scripture. I don't believe in this case there are any wasted letters either. It says, to appoint elders. Elders. There's an S on there. It's plural. And that's important. If you don't remember anything else, you're just here for the holidays and you're going to go back to your church, there is safety in a plurality of leadership. There's safety in a plurality of leadership. Yes, do you need a leader that's a first among equals? That's important too, because we've already learned, Michigan, that the dual quarterback system doesn't work. Okay, so you have to have someone that's making a call, but there's safety in a plurality of leaders. And I'm happy to say that there's a plurality of leaders at the tabernacle. Okay, it isn't what John says goes. That's not the way this works. First of all, we do have a nine-member executive board that I submit to and have authority over me. They do that. And then within our staff, we also have a, mu- or a system of mutual accountability that is very important. Anyone can call me out and I can call anyone else out because there's safety and a plurality of leaders. And if you don't believe it, spend any time with our staff and you'll see. I was just at a conference where one of our student ministries pastors didn't like the way the rest of us were talking at breakfast. And he said something about it, and I commended him because he was right. I got called out, and I admitted it. Tim Burgess and I have been working together for 17 years, right? In 17 years, Tim Burgess as the associate pastor, me as the lead pastor. He has successfully helped me think that I'm actually in charge. (laughs) Because Tim can call anything out. There's safety and plurality. Are you with us? You know, I wonder if that's why God, you know, when He set up the family, He gave a mom and a dad. You know, He thinks He's in charge. Let's be real. Right? But there's a plurality there. There's a plurality and there's safety there. So a church can't go beyond the level of its leadership. And the same is true of a family, a marriage, a team, a business. Now, there's one more thing that I have to say about leadership before we move to the next point that it's necessary. That it's necessary. And there's a verse that I was going to refer to, but I didn't want to read, but I'm going to have to read it. So if you flip over to Hebrews 13, uh, uh, there's something to be said. And remember, the best uh, commentary on God's word is actually God's word. I didn't want to read this verse because it's awkward for me to read. And so I was just going to fly past it. But then I kind of felt like God saying, hey, if you, you know, those awkward things that you don't want to read, I need you to read. Dang it. So I'm going to read it. Is that cool with you? In yes. speaking about leadership, what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, and I'm looking at verse 17, and remember, this is God talking. This isn't me. This isn't me. Okay. Okay, guys. Are you with me? Man, are see you with me? Yes. No, this isn't me. This is God. I'm just telling you what God said. Okay. Okay. This is what he says to the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now that's God speaking to his church. And it's not just about pastors, it's about your women's Bible study table leader, it's about your fight club leader, you know, it's about the dude that's trying to get you to serve, it's about your youth pastor, it's your leaders within the church, it says obey and submit to them because they're shepherding your souls. And, and this is the part I really don't like, as those who will have to give an account... I've said it before, I'm not trying to be mean, but it's just true. This church, any church, being a leader in a church is like being a clown at the goat rodeo. (laughs) And the worst part is, you know, I mean, we'll all stand before God someday and you gotta give an account for yourself. And then if you're married, dude, you gotta give an account for your marriage and your family and your kids and all that kind of stuff and what you do. But if you're a pastor, I have to give an account for you. Well, you tell me what it said. So I'm just asking you, help a brother out. (laughs) On judgment day, can you? Can you keep your pants on? You know, can you not have that extra drink when you don't need it? Can you not post that stuff on Facebook that's inappropriate? Because I'm like standing there going, I don't know. I tried to preach the word. And yeah, that's how it goes. So leadership is necessary and it's a part of any structure. We all play a part in this. And a church can't go beyond the level of leadership. The second thing I think is important to to notice about this little passage in Titus is he starts with the characteristics of his home life before he goes to his public life. Now, this is a he, her, whatever. If you're in any church leadership, remember, I don't care if it's a board, it's on staff, it's volunteer staff, you could be a student small group leader, doesn't matter. He starts with home life, Before he goes public. And here's the principle. You must lead in your house before leading in God's house. You must lead in your house before leading in God's house. So in other words, if your home life is a shambles, don't think you can come in here and be put in charge of something. In fact... You know, there are people that show up at church all the time and they love to tell us a resume and how big they are and how important they are and how impressive their gifts are and I should be put in charge of something. And we agree. We put those kind of people at our church in charge of sitting down and shutting up. <laughs> Not because we're better, but because it's like, hey, man, just it, it's better to be called up than to step up or be push yourself up but the principle you must lead in your house before leading in God's house. This is important because we live in a day and age that would like to believe that your personal life has nothing to do with your public life. Now I'm gonna say something that's gonna make everybody mad if you're hypersensitive. Your personal life has everything to do with your public life. You don't get to be one person at home and another person in public and not be called a hypocrite. And people on both sides of the political aisle, we know this is true unless it's our guy whose personal life we're ashamed of. Then all of a sudden, oh, personal has nothing to do with public. You know I'm right. Both sides have done it in the last 30 years with their president. Tell me I'm wrong. And we know that's utter foolishness. It's utter foolishness. And someone that's supposed to live a life above reproach, okay, in the church, whatever you want to do with politics, I don't care. But in this kingdom, in this kingdom, the private life has everything to do with the public life. And he starts at home. This is what he says. He says that he should be the husband of one wife and his children should be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Let's take those two things at once. First of all, when he says the husband of one wife, don't get legalistic. And there are a lot of churches that have tried to do that. Maybe you've been a part of a church that says, well, uh, uh, you know, a husband of one wife means that a single person is excluded. I don't think that's what that means because Paul (laughs) was single. So it can't mean that. Some people have tried to say, well, you know, if his first wife died and then he got remarried, ah, that's a second wife. He's, he's excluded. I don't think that's what it means either. Or we even go further. Well, in his previous life, he got divorced. Sorry, I have to whisper that around here. Be honest. Is that really what it means? Is that really what it means? What if it wasn't his fault? No, when it says a husband of one wife, the principle is that this guy should be a one woman man. It was a day and age where polygamy was kind of a big deal. In this day and age, you can have a wife and then have a wandering eye. We don't want that type of a person. Or you, can be, or you can have a husband and have a wandering eye. No, that's not what we're about. This guy, this woman, should have a marriage. An exemplary marriage is what we're saying. Not perfect, not flawless. There is no such thing. But a one-woman man. And then it goes on to say, and his children are believers. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and I'm going to admit to you That I don't believe that's a very good translation. In fact, I labored over over that this week. Uh, The actual translation is that his children are faithful, are faithful, and the ESV translators made faithful into believers. And I don't think that that matches up with my experience or what I see in the Bible because I believe our children are free agents, parenting is way overrated, and sooner or later, they have to make their own choice about whether or not they're gonna follow Jesus, And so to say, well, hey, does this leader, does he or she or all their kids, you know, perfect little angels? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, are they living a life where there is some control over their household, where their children aren't running wild? And that's why we get this thing right here where it says, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So in other words, he's saying, with his children, with her children, and with their marriage? Is there an above reproach pursuit of a life that's pleasing to God? Are you with me so far? You're not with me. Okay, look, if I was judged by my children, I'd have lost this job a long time ago, especially when they were three, six, and nine years old. Before the other, the youngest two joined us, right? You know that moment when they don't get the juice they want or they're whatever, and they're right in church or right at Tab Kids and whatever, and they do that. You know, when they all pass out and they lose their breath at the end? We we're talking about just this week, public service announcement. For those of you new parents, when that happens, what I discovered, you blow in their face when they're about to turn purple. And they go, and, they go, and take a deep breath and I save their life every time. I save their life. Or, or if you don't want to blow in their face, you just flick water in their face. You know, what I'm saying is your children are free agents, but is there a father? Is there a mother that is exhibiting some sort of parenting where they have them under control? This is important because you must lead in your house before leading in God's house. And the reason that I'm focusing on that is in our culture, if you have a television, if you have an Amazon Fire, or you're watching Netflix, I mean, there's there's a documentary that's given Christians another bad name. This little shiny, happy people thing, I'm just gonna name it, where a bunch of, and, and maybe some of us even in here at one time were a part of it, I wasn't, but where someone took God's principles, turned it into formula for raising kids God's way, and they created a cult, that wounded and damaged people. Where there's a cult leader who's unchallenged because there's no plurality of elders. And I had to walk out of the room, you know, because my wife loves this stuff, but I just have to go somewhere else, right? And the dude is demonstrating how to properly spank your child and then force him or her to hug you right after. And if they don't do it, you whoop them harder. That's grooming for more abuse. And it's somebody took this and and, and convinced a bunch of people, put on a shiny, happy smile. And we need wives that talk, baby talk to their husbands. Well, I just wait by the door every day until he comes home. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies, you're welcome. That's not real. That's not real. Okay, it's not. Yes, we're supposed to be full of joy and, and, and to rejoice in our struggles and our problems. But it's, man... Sorry for the rant. I'm about to go on vacation. So the filter's gone. It's third service. Here we go. I'm in trouble. (laughs) Leading in your house means that you teach and model the truth of God. That that is your pursuit. And your personal life does impact. It does impact your public life. Over here in 1 Timothy, and Timothy is extremely helpful for us because Paul's letter to Timothy, he says much of the same thing. In fact, it was the same reason. He, he's instructing a younger pastor on how to appoint elders, and he has a list, and, and, and if you compare them, they're the exact same things. It's just Titus is shorter. In 1 Timothy 3, it's longer. And if you've ever been in a fight club going through 1 Timothy, you know what I'm talking about. And so this helps us commentate on what it says there, and this, I think, will take some of the pressure out of the room. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says this. He goes, the saying is trustworthy... If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. And so, um, people that serve on staff at a church, they don't do that because they can't find another job. It's a noble thing to serve the house of God in the kingdom of God. It's a noble task. It's a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. There's that word again, those words. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. That's what he's driving at in Titus. It's about managing your kids, managing your marriage, your, or managing your household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So a church can't go beyond the level of its leadership, and neither can a family. And you must lead in your house before leading in God's house. You've got to lead in your house before you can lead anywhere else. Period. Now, What does this have to do with all of us? If you're honest and you noticed that list of things that I just read and the list of things that's back here in Titus 1, the qualifications for leaders are also God's calling on all Christians. So it isn't, oh, yeah, leaders, you better pay attention. It's all of us. We better pay attention. This standard that he's setting for leaders, it's what we're all called to. It's what we're all called to. And Paul's just restating, make sure at least your leaders have that. You see, we're all in this process where Jesus saved us by his grace, by his finished work on the cross, victorious through his resurrection and ascension. Now I'm a child of God and I'm saved. But I'm also in the process of being saved when by his truth and by his spirit, through my obedience, I'm becoming more and more like him. That's why we show up every week. We talked about that last week. We show up every week because built-in forgetters. And I'm in this process. I'm on this journey of becoming more and more like him. So this list or these lists of what we must not be and who we should be, it's not just for preachers. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. If you look at the list, you see that there's five must nots and seven musts. And just very quickly, in verse seven, it says, This is what an overseer, or I would say a Christian, must not be. First of all, arrogant. Arrogant. And if you're sitting there going, Well, how does he say that's for all Christians? I want my pastor humble, but I can be full of myself. No, Jesus was humble. We're called to be like Jesus, he was humble. We're not called to be arrogant. We're called to put others first. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And he says, no servant is above his master. As I have done to you, you must do to one another. You can't be arrogant and wash feet at the same time. We must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Quick-tempered. I'm just going to tell you right now, the things that I regret probably most in my life are the moments I've lost my temper with my children, especially when they were little. If I could take it back, I would do it. We were sitting around the table at my mom's or after my mom's 80th birthday. And I heard my father say the same thing. He's 80 years old. He still remembers losing his temper with my sister Joy after a service where he just kind of lost it when she was about five or six years old. And he said, I, I, I'm still apologizing. He's 80 years old. He's still apologizing for that. Quick-tempered. You don't want a preacher that's quick-tempered, and it's not okay for you to be quick-tempered. Well, sometimes these kids. Well, they're your kids, Mr. Leader of your house. We shouldn't be quick-tempered. We're called to be patient. And if you need help with patience, drive around Traverse City this week. It'll, it'll, it'll make you a better person or reveal your fractures, All right. says he must not be a drunkard, must not be a drunkard. You don't want your preacher showing up drunk, and you shouldn't either, you know? Being drunk's not okay. It's not funny. Man, we're just the 4th of July, you know, it's just like once a month. No, it's dumb. You make dumb mistakes, you do stupid things, and you hurt people. I've heard more than one dude try to justify it. Well, I don't always treat her that way. It's just when I'm drunk. Well, why do you keep drinking? We're supposed to not be drunk with wine. We're supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit. It says not to be violent. Not to be violent. It would be a bad deal if I'm getting in a fist fight with a member right out in the lobby, <laughs> right? Or, or worse yet, two board members going at, at it. Fight, fight, fight. Boy, people would come back to church then, wouldn't they, Right? But it's not just physical violence. We can, uh, uh, we can be spiritually violent, and I've seen people do it. We can be emotionally violent. It's called abuse. It's called abuse. And what's sad is in Christian circles, sometimes when someone takes spiritual stuff, like the aforementioned documentary, and they turn it into emotional abuse, they justify it using scripture, that's the worst kind. That's the worst kind. And, you know, if you're wondering why why are they banging away on us joining the free church and we finally did, is because we need accountability. 40, 50 years, I'm dead and gone. I don't know who's running around here and I'm trying to be a good steward. This church, I'm sad to say, and I'm not afraid to say, in its history has had leaders who were violent men, spiritually violent men. We're not having it. We're going to get another layer of accountability if that's okay. Both within the church and outside the church. It says not greedy for gain. And we've had those. And I know I'm not supposed to speak about it, but I know who you're thinking about. We had a prominent staff member who was greedy for gain. Stole from God's church. And we're not sweeping it under the rug. That happened. That happened. That happened. And that's why they're not here. Don't be awkward. We speak truth. We don't want an overseer like that. Then he turns a corner. This is what they must be. Hospitable. That means welcoming. Welcoming to all. Not playing favorites. It doesn't mean that everybody's coming to my house for a sleepover. (laughs) It's a lot of sleepovers. It doesn't mean we're doing dinner with everybody. A lot of people come in here and, you know... Our family, we'd like to have you for dinner. Well, first of all, I'd like not to be eaten. Um, <laughs> secondly, it's, it, with a large church, it's not always possible. So what does hospitable look like in a church in two locations about to be three? It means welcoming. You do for some what you can't do for all. And as a church and as leaders, we want to be hospitable towards people. A lover of good, not a lover of bad things, a lover of good things. Self-controlled. You don't want your leaders out of control. Well, we, we don't want moms and dads out of control. We don't want any Christians out of control. There's an element of self-control that comes from being set free by the Holy Spirit of God. Upright and holy. Some translations say righteous and holy. Don't they mean the same thing? No. Upright or righteous means righteous or doing rightly in my dealings with other human beings. Holy means I'm upright or righteous in my dealings with God. I want to be a lover of God and a lover of people and upright in those dealings. That's who your leaders are supposed to be and that's who we're called to be, all of us. Disciplined. And not everyone's discipline looks the same. Okay, there's some people that are so disciplined it wears me out just reading their their little list of disciplines. It takes five pages to show how disciplined you are and I'm not even disciplined enough to finish it. But we have different levels of discipline. Some of us spend time with God in the morning. Some of us spend time with God as we go. Some of us spend time, guys, in the evening. We all have a different routine. We all have different personalities. But this is what someone who's to be a leader and called this is the picture. So that... Next verse, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, the unchanging word of God. Please, as as long as, as you're alive and I'm talking to the young people, don't ever accept a leader at this church or any other church that plays the did God really say game. We hold firm to the word as it is taught, the unchanging word of God. We don't apologize for it. And we don't try to bend it to make it say what we want it to say. This is important for your leaders, for your moms, for your dads, small group leaders, you name it, so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. This is so we can keep true to the preaching and teaching of God's word. So we can teach others and we can also rebuke when we fall into error. The qualifications for leaders are also God's calling on all Christians. Now, whenever we present a list like this, and I'm going to try to hustle up here, there's one of two reactions that can happen, and both of them are bad reactions. Listen to me. When we read a list like 1 Timothy, or we read a list like I just did here, what we tend to do is to either go, got it, got it, Got it. Man, I should run this place. Look, I'm the most unarrogant person here. I'm the most humble person in this room. Please put me in charge, right? We start thinking that we've got it. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Or we have the other reaction to a list. We go, failed, 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 failed. I'm not worthy to be a dad. I'm not worthy to be a mom. I shouldn't do anything. Those are both problems. Those are both problems. And so again, we go to 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 6, in First Timothy 6, I just want to read to you a little passage because again, he's going to give a list, but his wording there is going to be helpful for both of those extremes. For those of us called, meaning I'm a child of God, I'm following Jesus. This is what he says. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee all the negative stuff. Flee the sinful stuff. Flee the selfish stuff, the quick tempered, the greed, the arrogance. And then I love this word. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I love that word pursue. So if you think you've arrived, you haven't, keep pursuing. Pursue righteousness. When he says fight the good fight, it's a present tense. You don't stop fighting that fight till the lights go out. From here to there, we fight the good fight and we keep pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. If you're sitting there feeling I'm a failure, I'm unworthy, I can never lead anything, I can't even lead my own home because you know I, I don't match up to the list, pursue, church, look at me, pursue, pursue, pursue. In the book of Hebrews, it says that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, So he could sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. We pursue him. And as we pursue him, we become more like him. As we love him, we become more like him. As we serve him, we become more like him. As we're washed in his word and by his spirit, and we gather together and hold each other accountable and spur one another on to love and good needs, we become more like him. And that's our calling. So don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. Yes. Should you hold your leaders to that standard? Absolutely. But guess what? As a leader, I'm holding you to the same standard. You with me? There's only one perfect man. His name is Jesus. And it's who we worship. It's who we sing about. It's who we celebrate. And so it's fitting. It's fitting that on this weekend, on this Independence Day week for for our nation, that we celebrate communion, which is our real independence. Our independence, our freedom from Satan, sin, death, from accusation. And so I'm going to invite you here and also in Manistee, if you'll bow your heads, and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. And if you're a Christian, you know what this entails, but just in case we have newer believers or visitors or what have you, just a reminder that the communion is only for those who have been saved by the blood of the lamb. Communion is only for those who have uh, uh, become a child of God, by receiving God's grace through faith. And if you're not a Christian, we invite you to do that. The scripture also uh, reminds us that although this is a celebration, uh, this is also supposed to be a reverent moment. And so I've been asked by our staff to please don't go barreling for the door and knocking over signs in the middle of communion right now, uh, that this is a holy time, even though it's a celebratory time. We ask God to examine our hearts and if there's sin in our life, we take a moment even now to confess that sin so that we can receive communion without judgment and without disgrace. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the scripture records that he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said to take this. Take this. This is my body given for you. And on the very next day, he would offer himself as a sacrifice for sin because the only thing that pays for sin is blood. And then afterwards, he took a cup of wine And he said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood that is shed for you. And his instructions for the church is that often as we eat or drink of this table together, we commemorate his death, we celebrate his death, our Independence Day, until he comes. And so this weekend, as we take communion, I would ask in a prayerful way that we examine our own hearts and ask God to examine us. Am I living an above reproach life? Is that my pursuit? And as we take communion, we thank God that he's paid for our sin. But maybe we also ask God to help us pursue his righteousness in a new and a fresh way, even if we'll never lead anything but ourselves. God in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth. I thank you for your sovereign providence that has brought us to this moment. I thank you for sending your son, Jesus as a sacrifice for my sin and all those who call on his name. Jesus, I thank you that you were perfect. You are flawless. That you laid your life down so that we can be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. Spirit, would you help us to pursue you, to pursue this calling, not just as leaders, but as Christians. Would you wash us with your word and by your power? And as we take this communion, even this weekend, would you renew in our hearts a commitment to follow you, to let your spirit, you the spirit, make us more like you? For Christ's sake and in his name, we pray. Amen.